I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, here's a quick quiz for you. Which region of Canada is named for a Johnny Cash hit song? Not sure? Okay, I'm going to give you some hints, but I promise I won't sing. (laughs) It's part of the second largest concentration of peat bogs in the world, a crucial tool in the fight against climate change. And it also holds significant deposits of minerals, including nickel, copper, gold, even diamonds. Have you figured it out yet? Okay, I've got one more clue for you. It is home to a growing battle, with First Nations, activists, governments, and industry divided over what's better for the planet. Protecting an ecological jewel that stores carbon, or mining valuable minerals that can power electric vehicles. Are you still stumped? Okay, I'll give you the answer. It's Ring of Fire. Welcome to What on Earth, where the answer, unlike Johnny Cash's song, is not a love story. I'm Laura Lynch. Now, it turns out the name Ring of Fire, it actually has nothing to do with the geography of the region. It's a group of mining claims. The late Richard Nemus dubbed the claims the Ring of Fire. And if you look at a map of northern Ontario, it's actually not even a ring. It's more of a crescent. Nemus founded Norant Resources. The company has the most mining claims in the area. And Nemus chose the label just because he loved Johnny Cash. A couple of years ago, the company's current president started his own podcast. It spreads the word not about the singer, but about what lies beneath the Ring of Fire. Hi, everyone. It's Alan Coots here. I'm the president and CEO of Norant Resources. That's from the first episode, focusing on the use of nickel for electric car batteries. Soon, an Australian company will actually take over Norant, but it too is focused on nickel for batteries. Based on an announcement of a new mining strategy from Ontario Premier Doug Ford just days ago in northern Ontario, you'd think it's all proceeding smoothly, that there aren't any barriers to backhoes biting into the land in search of increasingly precious metals. It's a five-year roadmap to expand extraction of the critical minerals that are now in high demand. Minerals that Ontario has in abundance. As it's framed now, it's all for the good of the planet to supply EVs and cut carbon. But for some people who live in the isolated region, what's good for mining companies, even electric vehicles, isn't necessarily good for them, the environment, or climate change. My name is Michel Kustajan. I'm from Matawapsket. I was born and raised in the James Bay Coast area in northern Ontario. Kustajan wants to put a halt to any mining in the Ring of Fire before it starts. And he's organized a petition to get that word out to government. He sees the effects of climate change all around him. 
threatening people's ability to hunt, fish, and travel on the river and the swampy network of peatlands. We're the water people. That's why we don't have horses. They, they can't run. It's all swamp. And uh, everything we do, we have to travel on that river with uh, ice. So what happens with the climate change, our seasons are being shortened. So it melts early than usual. Gustafsson also carries a healthy skepticism about promises from government and corporations. His nation has faced crises over the years involving housing and contaminated water. So Gustafsson and others, including some First Nation chiefs, want the provincial and federal governments to throw out a proposal for a new environmental assessment panel that was written without Indigenous partnership. Tell them to stop, scrap it, because uh, we have elders that they, they know that climate change happening in our area. And also, like, uh, we have traditional knowledge keepers. They're not scientists, but they know something's wrong with, uh, with Mother Earth. It is a pristine area, and Mother Earth, as Kustashin says, has blanketed it with the kind of massive peat bogs that hold carbon, protecting it from seeping into the atmosphere as harmful emissions. So Noront Resources' focus on the emissions-beating potential of mining for critical minerals stands out. Let's go back to the President's podcast. Well, you heard it here first. The Noront Resources Eagle's Nest deposit is going to be a major contributor into a new world of electric vehicle batteries and is going to help us move into this world of lower carbon dependence. So the tension is evident. The solution is up for debate. Now, we did contact Norant Resources directly. In a statement, it says that minerals mined in the Ring of Fire are, quote, essential to a decarbonized future. And it added the projects will provide needed infrastructure like roads to local First Nations. We should note, though, that there isn't consensus amongst First Nations in the area to support building roads and infrastructure, while five oppose any development until a satisfactory environmental assessment is done that ensures protection of the area. Let's get back to the giant peatlands in the region. They're known as the Hudson Bay Lowlands. If you're one of our dedicated listeners, you probably know that peatlands are a wonder at storing carbon. In fact, they're the best carbon banks on the planet, locking it away long term. Our next guest has been studying the carbon in these peatlands and what's at stake if mining goes ahead. Lorna Harris is a forest, peatlands and climate change scientist at Wildlife Conservation Society Canada. Hello. Hi there. So we're talking about a really large stretch of wetlands. I wonder if you could start by sort of painting a picture of what the Hudson Bay lowlands look like. Sure. Yeah, the the Hudson Bay lowlands are the largest peatlands in North America and one of the largest expanses of near-continuous peatland in the world. So these peatlands cover an area bigger than Germany um, or bigger than the UK and Ireland combined. And what really sets them out um, is that these wetlands are mostly intact. So there are several First Nation communities living in this remote region, but there are no roads, there's only winter roads, some rail, and there's no other major infrastructure. Most peatlands in Europe are degraded 
uh, and need expensive restoration. Uh, but we have this amazing uh, undisturbed watery landscape uh, right here in, in Canada, in the Hudson Bay Lowland. I like that, that description, watery landscape. What does it actually <laughs> look like if, if you're looking at it? Um, as you fly over this area, um, it is basically just just peat as far as the eye can see. So uh, bogs and fens, all connected through streams and rivers all across this landscape. It's a really, really beautiful landscape that's been it's been developing for thousands of years, um, completely uninterrupted. Tell me why peatlands are so important for climate change or for fighting climate change. Yeah, so as you've mentioned, uh, peatlands store a lot of carbon. Um, so this is essentially carbon that is dead plants that they haven't fully decomposed because the ground is so wet. So this carbon has been taken from the atmosphere by the plants uh, thousands of years ago. It's been locked in the peat soils. And this has effectively cooled the climate over the past 10,000 years or so. Um, so we really need this carbon to, to stay in the ground because um, if we damage or disturb peatlands, this stored carbon is, is released to the atmosphere as carbon dioxide. And this adds to our greenhouse gas emissions and it makes uh, global climate warming worse. So the government of Ontario and a company called Norant are pushing for mining in the peatlands. What kind of impact do you think that could have on the carbon emissions? Yeah, so the Ring of Fire mining development, um, as it's called, the mining claims cover over 5,000 square kilometres. And most of that area is covered in wet and highly connected peatlands, uh, which store roughly around 450 million tonnes of carbon. So if only half of this carbon was to be released to the atmosphere because of the damage and the disturbance, this is one year of Canada's total greenhouse gas emissions just from this one development. Um, so it has quite a big implication for Canada's climate targets um, and climate change overall globally. Uh, help me understand this a bit more because uh, is the problem that, that the company would actually be mining the peatland or would it be construction of roads? How would the peatland be releasing all of that? So to, to get to the deposits, these are all underneath the peatlands. Um, they need to remove the peat that's overlying of this, this area. Um, and also the roads as well. Um, they have to build the roads over the peatlands. This involves draining some of the peatlands. There'll be watercourses and streams and other channels will be redirected. So the impact of, of this uh, development on the region could be quite big on the peatlands because it is so highly connected. That's what I was going to ask you. So, so you're saying that, that uh, even if it's a limited area that's mined, it could, the, the carbon could be released from other parts of the peatland network? Yes, yes, it could, yeah. How does that happen? Um, so if you, for instance, you drain uh, one peatland um, area, then that was storing a lot of fresh water, which was then supporting other wetland areas next to it. Um, so those wetland areas won't have that water source anymore. So they may end up drying as well and be more vulnerable to climate warming, essentially, and more carbon dioxide release in those peatlands. Now, that number that, that, that you have quoted, which is essentially doubling Canada's uh, carbon emissions over the course of a mm -hmm. year, are you quoting a worst case scenario? It's a rough estimate. So we don't have a lot of data for the Ring of Fire region on, on how much carbon is actually stored in the peatlands there. So we have a rough estimate of how much could be stored there. And then 
I basically assumed that not all of that carbon is going to be converted to CO2. That's just not going to happen. But if, say, if half of it was, that's the amount of carbon dioxide that could be released. That's what's at risk from this development and why we need more information to really understand the consequences of the development on the peatlands, the carbon and the climate. Right. Because it still sounds like a lot of carbon, but wouldn't it be released kind of slowly over time? And not all at once. It could be. Um, but say if that amount was to be slowly released over the next 10 years, that still increases Canada's greenhouse gas emissions by 10% every year. Um, so it's still, you know, there's still an increase. It's the wrong direction, basically. We're trying to reduce greenhouse gas emissions um, to prevent climate warming. But this just takes it in the wrong direction. I want to ask you about something else, though, because Ontario... The province of Ontario is calling the region one of the province's most promising developments for the what they're calling critical minerals that are needed mm -hmm. uh, for electric cars. What do you make of that? So I would first question whether there are alternative sources for these critical minerals um, instead of opening up new mines in essentially one of the largest intact carbon rich peatland landscapes in the world. Um, so are there other locations, perhaps existing mines or mining waste and tailings? Um, are these more sustainable options? And also where the carbon balance of emissions from the construction and the operations, the damage to the peatlands, isn't going to be significantly greater than the savings from electric vehicles. So does the carbon balance actually make sense? So I think we've got to ask these questions and understand these consequences first before um, we go ahead with this kind of development. There, there is uh, an, an assessment going ahead, a so-called regional assessment, and, and recently there were the uh, governments of Ontario and Canada released proposed terms of reference for the assessment of the mining development. I'm wondering if, if you've looked at them and what you think of them. I have, yes. So the, first of all, the importance of the stored carbon in the peatlands in the region uh, for climate regulation and for global climate targets, it's missing from the terms of reference. Um, so this is quite significant and quite, a, quite an alarming omission, given the IPCC report that recently came out highlighting the need to cut emissions to protect peatlands, to restore peatlands uh, to, for our climate targets. But the terms of reference themselves, they, they're not even close to what we really need for a development of this size in this region. Once this carbon is released to the atmosphere, we just can't get it back in the ground. It's essentially irrecoverable um, and where the impacts will go beyond the mining footprints. So basically, the terms of reference as they are uh, signal a sort of a business as usual approach, which is just not good enough for this, this really exceptional wetland landscape that is it's globally important for for climate regulation and and really rare to have such an intact landscape as well. Now, there is an election coming up in Ontario in June. I'm wondering if this has become a campaign issue. Um, I'm not sure if it has, but I think um, if people are not aware of this, then, you know, I would hope that they do become aware. Um, and I know, you know, if they're aware and concerned by, you know, the loss of rainforests, such as in the Amazon, or if they're concerned by the loss of tropical peat forests in Indonesia for oil plan, palm plantations, then they should also be aware and concerned by the Ring of Fire development in the Hudson Bay lowland. And I think they should raise these concerns with politicians and candidates that are out campaigning 
ask them the questions. So what are the likely impacts of the Ring of Fire development on wetlands, peatlands, and for climate change? Is this really the only source, the only option within Ontario and Canada um, for critical minerals for electric vehicles or other, other, other sources? So I think um, if people can ask these questions and raise these issues, um, then, you know, this would be a good thing. Thanks for taking the time to explain all of this to us. My pleasure. Thank you. So that is the view of Lorna Harris. But the Ontario government seems determined to go ahead. Greg Rickford is the Minister of Northern Development, Mines, Natural Resources and Forestry. He is also the Minister of Indigenous Affairs. And he spoke to reporters outside a noisy mining site at Premier Ford's announcement a few days ago. So beware, it is a bit hard to hear. The simple answer is there's no green economy without mining. And what this roadmap that we're announcing today is, and that is a greener way to, to extract critical minerals, take them to electric vehicles, bring them to other technologies that the world's asking for. And frankly, in the context of the global affairs right now, bringing them from a jurisdiction that has high environmental standards, that is improving its indigenous engagement and involvement in these kinds of activities, has labor standards and workers of a first class that are producing them in sharp contrast to the jurisdictions like China and like Russia, who are obviously creating large problems for the world today. Hi, I'm Sandra Bartlett. I produced the Salmon People podcast about the fight to save wild salmon. Now I'm back with The Poison Detectives, a podcast about a nasty chemical that's poisoning the world. Yes, poisoning the world. It's a man-made chemical family called PFAS, and there are more than 12,000 chemicals in this family. It's in the material that firefighting suits are made from, and one woman went on a quest to find out if it gave her firefighter husband cancer. Our next guest has been pushing for a domestic supply of these minerals for years. Danielle Breton is the president and CEO of Electric Mobility Canada. It's a nonprofit that advocates for ramping up electric vehicles to fight climate change and boost the economy. Danielle Breton, hello. Hi. I'm wondering how important you think Ontario is in supplying these so-called critical minerals in Canada. Ontario is very important because, uh, well, first of all, the province has a lot of them for both renewable energy, electric mobility, and defense material as well. So uh, considering the fact that we have to transition as quickly as we can to lower our greenhouse gas emissions, Ontario is certainly part of the solution. And for geopolitical reasons as well, because as mentioned, uh, China right now holds, I would say, almost a chokehold on a lot of critical mineral refining. And uh, what we're seeing with the war in Ukraine, there's also a geopolitical issue as well. So we have to find other sources of critical minerals. One of the regions that Ontario is looking to mine is in the so-called Ring of Fire, and, and that's set within one of the largest peatlands in the world. Those, those peatlands are estimated to store 450 million tons of carbon. And we heard earlier in the program that if only half of that carbon was to be released to the atmosphere, perhaps because of damage and disturbance to the peatlands, that's about a year's worth of Canada's total greenhouse gas emissions from just this one development. So I'm wondering if you have any concerns about that. Absolutely. I mean, 
First of all, we have to always think about the fact that when we're talking about greener technologies, whether it's renewable energy or electric mobility, it's never totally green. It's to see what's the best solution that we can find to lower not only greenhouse gas emissions, but air pollution as well. So if we are to accelerate mining in Ontario for critical minerals, we have to make sure that we do that in the most respectful way possible towards not only the environment, but uh, First Nations. And second, uh, we have to make sure that part of the equation goes into reuse of batteries for electric vehicles and recycling as well. If you can forgive the pun, let's dig into this a little bit more. I mean, do you have do you have any guarantees that that this area can be mined without disturbing the peatlands? Oh no, I I know that it will be disturbed, but we have to disturb it the least possible, because I mean, right now what's happening in the oil sands is having a devastating effect. So we cannot replicate the same way of doing business in Ontario that we've been doing in the oil sands in Alberta. So that's why we have to learn from our past mistakes to make sure that there's as little disturbance as possible. But we have to keep in mind that uh, right now, uh, what's at stake is greenhouse gas emissions. So that's why the peatlands has to be part of the calculation. That's absolutely uh, critical. Uh, And uh, let's not forget that when we mine, because we're talking about mining, when we're talking about oil sands, Once the oil sands are mined and it becomes oil for gas or diesel, these are not recyclable. These are 0% recyclable, while critical minerals are for companies like Lifecycle in Ontario or Lithium in Quebec. These can be recycled up to 95%. I understand that. And and, and you've just framed it as a trade-off. We, we might we might it disturb is. you say some of the peatlands, but it's okay if we get these minerals. But the, but the fact remains we have a limited supply of these minerals, and by comparison, we have a huge swath of the world's carbon storing peatlands, which is a, a climate solution. How are you weighing those competing climate needs? We have to make the calculations. If we say, well, we're going to lose more than we will win. I mean, this is something that we have to be, discuss seriously. Uh, that's that's not my job because I don't work for the Ontario government, but the Ontario government has to look at all the calculations when the mining companies come to them and say, we will be able to save greenhouse gas emissions at that level and how much greenhouse gas emissions will be emitted while doing this. So this is something that has to be looked in very thoroughly. Yeah, I, mean, I don't expect you to be an expert on this, but do you have any sense of how that can be mined without, as we heard in previous interviews, growing the threat of ruining the peatlands because if you disturb one area, it affects the rest. Well, no, I'm not an expert in that, but I can tell you uh, because of the fact that I've been working on GHG emission reduction for decades now, that uh, this is something that can be calculated. So if we can calculate it, let's do it. And, uh, And after that, I guess that the government will have to make a decision to me uh, if we see that there's less benefit than there are inconvenience, I mean, we shouldn't move forward with projects, but we have to look at this project by project to make sure that we see that maybe some projects are good, some of them not so good, some of them not good at all. Yeah, that, and that was my next question because um, 
when we look at the the ring of fire, it, they're looking at nickel, cobalt, copper as a few of yep. the minerals. And I'm wondering, are there other places in Canada where these minerals could be mined that that's not in a carbon rich peatland? Well, Canada is a carbon rich peatland. <laughs> <laughs> so, so because when you look at northern Quebec, northern Alberta, northern Saskatchewan, uh, I mean, all of these territories are really rich in northern peatlands. So. Uh, but we have to look at what's the, the best solution, all things considered. It's not an easy decision. And that's why when people say electric cars are green cars, they're not green cars. They're cars that pollute less, that have less of an environmental impact. So that's why I always say, I've been always saying that electric cars, if we're talking about electric mobility, it's not the solution. We have to look at a number of solutions to lower our greenhouse gas emissions and air pollution like transit like, uh, you know, uh, active transportation and, and uh, you know, uh, carpooling, car sharing, uh, telecommute. So all of these solutions are part of the solution. There's no silver bullet here. And not only that, because we can't rely solely on technologies, but we have to look as well at helping Canadians change their behaviors. I mean, I don't know if you know about this, but Canada is the number one country in the world for average fuel consumption of its light duty vehicle fleet and average GHG for, for his light duty vehicle fleet. So what that means is that we drive many big cars right. and big trucks. So we I, have to change our behavior. To put this into context, can you remind us how much of Canada's emissions actually come from transport? If you look at downstream emissions, meaning tailpipe emissions, it's 25%. But when you look at upstream and downstream emission from transportation, it's actually more than 31%, meaning that in fact, it's the number one source of GHG emissions in the country. And upstream meaning? Uh, the oil that you get that you put into the vehicle. Now, Canada has this history of harvesting and supplying raw materials. You know that old saying, hewers of wood, drawers of water. But I'm wondering yeah. if it needs to shift thinking and put its efforts instead into leveraging expertise in battery research or the auto parts manufacturing chain instead. Absolutely. I mean, we've been doing this for decades, if not centuries, you know, that we are a natural resources country. We have to go way beyond that because of all the universities that we have, the qualified workforce that we have. When you look at the two different battery chemistries that you can find in a Tesla vehicle, well, one of these chemistries has been worked on by a laboratory in Nova Scotia with Jeff Dan, and the other one, the other chemistry, most of the research has been done in Quebec by Irek and Karim Zaib. So that shows that we have the know-how, we have the expertise. So we have to focus a lot more on value-added technology, research and development, instead of just uh, mineral extraction. Daniel Breton, I thank you so much for your time. It was my pleasure. It's really interesting to hear how the conversations around things like electric vehicles have evolved over time as we do begin to grasp that there is no single silver bullet, as Daniel Breton said, that there isn't a, a one-size-fits-all. And in this case, that there are two conflicting choices about the best way to deal with climate. And I think it's a kind of conversation that is going to come up again and again as we keep discussing climate change and potential solutions, benefits, drawbacks. And as with everything on this show, it's complicated. But we would love to hear from you what you think about this or anything else that you hear on What on Earth. Email us, earth at cbc.ca. And thanks this week to the What on Earth team, associate producers Devin Nguyen and Serena Renner, producer Molly Siegel, 
Matthias Wolfson is our engineer. Our senior producer is Manisha Janakaram. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.